0: Luke chapter 2. So we're moving toward
1: Christmas now in five days time and I'm actually glad I'm busy with a series in Luke and it worked out well that we now reach the birth of Jesus on this 20th of December 2020. The theme I've chosen for this passage is Jesus the pivot of history. Let's pray and ask the Lord to meet with us as we open His holy word. Father, we come to you as broken sinners, to you, the Almighty and majestic and awesome God. And we pray that you would have mercy on us and that you would use me, a clay pot, a jar of clay, an earthen vessel, so that the power would be seen. In your gospel and not in clay pots. What are we but clay pots that bear the treasure of the good news of Jesus
0: Christ? I pray, Lord, that the,
1: the faith of these people and my own faith will not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Amen. So when I use the word pivot, it's almost like uh, pivot irrigation pivotal irrigation, you see a circular field or a circular farm where they plant, let's say, maize millets, and the pivot is right in the middle of this circular field, and then you've got the irrigation going out from the pivot or connected to this pivot, and the pivot makes sure that the irrigation turns, this whole system turns, and The whole field is irrigated. The whole field gets gets water. And in the same way, we can speak of Jesus as the pivot of history because all of history revolves around Jesus Christ. Our calendar revolves around Jesus. That's why we use B.C. and A.D. I'll say a bit more about that later. Before Christ and uh, in the year of our Lord, A.D., Ado Domini, or after the birth of Jesus. And then God the Father also makes sure that every single thing that happens in history is part of a much greater plan and a much greater purpose that revolves around Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage in Luke 2. So first of all, we're going to look at Jesus and Caesar, or Jesus and the emperor. And that is in verse 1 to 7. Let's read. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, Caesar Augustus, we read of him in verse 1, Caesar Augustus was born in the year 63 B.C., And his name, he was born as Gaius Octavius. Augustus's grandmother, or Octavius's other name, his grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. So, what happened then is that Julius Caesar adopted Octavius as his own son. And then Octavius started his rule or his reign in the year 31 BC, and he reigned until. 14 or AD 14 and then what happened is the council this Roman Senate they gave Octavius the title of Augustus so when verse 1 speaks of Caesar Augustus Caesar is not a name that's what he is that's his job description he's the emperor and then Augustus is not a name either it became kind of a name but really it's a title that they gave him and it means exalted one It means the one who extends, uh, probably referring to extending his his rule, his reign, his kingdom, the the empire. Now, because the Romans, they exalted Julius Caesar to the status of a god, so what they then did to Caesar Augustus is they called him the son of God. And they also regarded him as the one who brought Pax Romana. Pax Romana is a Latin word, it means world peace. So he brought peace to the Roman empire. And then in the year 17 BC, Augustus had these games called the Secular Games, where they brought sacrifices to various gods, just kind of to say we are going into a new era, into a new age now, and we bring these sacrifices so we can be cleansed, the people can be cleansed from their sins. Now what Luke is doing is Luke is really playing with all of these thoughts to try and show you that Jesus, not caesar augustus jesus is the exalted one he's the augustus jesus is the one who will extend his rule jesus is the son of god not augustus jesus is the one who brings world peace not augustus jesus is the one who brings a new age Not Caesar Augustus, and Jesus is the one who gave himself as a sacrifice to purify us from our sins. Not Augustus by sacrificing to the gods and and bringing forgiveness during these secular games. Jesus is the one who does all of this. And then we also learn from verse 1 that God controls the king's heart. God controls is sovereign over the king's heart. God moves world rulers like we move pawns on a chessboard. And God does this to fulfill His eternal purposes. Proverbs 21 verse 1 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. Uh, In Acts chapter 4 verse 27 and 28, we read of God overruling and using Pontius Pilate king herod the jews and uh, the romans to fulfill his grand purposes his eternal decrees his eternal plans his eternal counsel his predestined purposes like in the book of ezra a number of times god moved the king's heart heart god put it in the into the king's heart and these aren't even christian or believing kings they pagans So it was God who moved Caesar Augustus in verse 1 to call for a census so that all the the ancient world, the Roman Empire, had to be registered. So you had to go to, to your hometown, the town you were born in, the town you grew up in, and you had to go there to be registered. So God really moved Caesar Augustus to call for the census so that Joseph and Mary could go to Bethlehem and God's prophecy could be fulfilled that Jesus would be born the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem Micah chapter 5 verse 2 that's the prophecy where it said that the the ruler of God's people the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and God still does this God still works through world leaders and he influences their decisions and he does this so that he would fulfill his grand purposes And he uses these world rulers, even if their decisions mean you can no longer go on holiday because of uh, stricter lockdowns, or even if the rulers, their decisions mean that you lose your job. God is working in and through all of this to fulfill his purposes. Uh, There's an illustration of this in history. In the year 1662, in England, there was something called the Great Ejection. What that meant is that more than 2,000 pastors were ejected from their churches, evicted from their churches. They weren't allowed to preach in their churches anymore because of a rule the government made. And during that time, these pastors wrote thousands of books, thousands of Christian books that to this very day many people have been converted because of those books and many Christians have become stronger in their faith because of those books. I've got many of those books on my shelf. One of those books, a number of you have that on your shelf. It's called The Pilgrim's Progress. And that all because a ruler made a decision and that influenced uh, pastors, but really God's hand was behind that. So God knows what He's doing and God knows why He does certain things. So what we need to do is we, learn, we, we need to learn to trust that God will work these things together for our good. God will work the, these things out and blend them together. All these decisions that rulers make and everything that happens in our life, He will blend them together to bring forth something wonderful and something beautiful. And this promise, according to Romans 8 verse 20, 28, is for all those who love Him and for those who are called according to God's purpose, those who have been called to be children of God. So it's wonderful to think that God can use, and God did use, the decision of one man to change the course of history. And this happened, says verse 2, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Now, according to some, that poses a bit of a problem, because they would say Luke has made a historical error there, because... Quirinius wasn't the governor of Syria during the time of Jesus' birth. He was only the governor of Syria in the year 6 to 9 AD, not B.C. And that's when the census took place. Well, uh, to solve that problem, there's an an inscription that was found on a big rock, a big piece of stone at Tivoli, close to Rome, in the year 1746, And this inscription speaks of, when when you read it, it it speaks of a man who was the governor of Syria, a Roman officer or a Roman um, governor. He was the governor of Syria twice during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Now, unfortunately, a piece of this rock or stone has been lost, so we don't have this Roman governor's name but if we look at the information that we do have the person that fits this best or suits this best is Quirinius and then others would say well the problem in verse 2 really to solve that problem perhaps we should translate verse 2 differently as you see if you've got an English Standard Version there's a a little number a number 2 in verse 2 and then you go to the bottom of the page and it says it can also be translated, this was the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. So the Greek word, uh, the first registration, that word first in Greek can also be translation, uh, translated before, as in John 1 verse 15, where we read that that Jesus was before the John the Baptist. It doesn't only mean greater, it means he existed before him, even though John was born before Jesus, but Jesus existed from eternity. And so in the same way what Luke is doing in verse 2 then, uh, Luke doesn't mean this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor. What it it can mean and how it could be translated is this was was the, the registration before Quirinius was governor of Syria. In other words, Luke is trying to tell you this census I'm talking about here. Uh, was the one during the time of Caesar Augustus, not the, one, not the one when Quirinius was governor of Syria and the Jews revolted and the Jews rebelled, as we see in Acts 5.37. No, I'm talking about a different census here, before Quirinius was even governor of Syria. This was a very peaceful census, so that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem so that the Messiah could be born in Bethlehem. All right. Now there are some other solutions also, but in which, whatever way you, you we we understand verse two, we do know that Luke was very meticulous and very specific and very particular in his research, as we see in chapter one, verse three, where he says, "I followed all things. Some, uh, he's followed all things closely, and he's written an orderly account." And we know that the Bible is the word of God, so verse two cannot be a lie. Luke 2 verse 2, because God cannot lie and the Bible is his word. And I've got a, a whole string a whole string of references here that tells us that. Now according to Luke, everyone during the census, everyone had to go to his hometown to be registered, verse 3. And now both Joseph and Mary, they're from the line of David, the lineage of David, they're from the house of David. And so they go from Nazareth in the north of, north of Israel, they're now going south to Bethlehem, And Bethlehem is called the city of David, verse 3 or verse 4, because that's where David was born, according to 1 Samuel 16 and also uh, 1 Samuel 17, verse 58. And so Luke's point is to tell us Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who had to come from the line of David. Jesus is the true King of Israel from the line of David. We already saw that in 1 verse 32. And then Luke also wants to tell us God's timing is perfect. Jesus was born at the right time while Joseph and Mary were in Bethlehem. Why did Caesar Augustus order the census? Why didn't he, why didn't he do it a month earlier? Why didn't he do it later, uh, five months later? Why, why wasn't Jesus born a week early? Why wasn't he born only when Mary and Joseph went back from Bethlehem, back to Nazareth? verse 6 while they were there the time came for her to give birth jesus was born at the right time in the fullness of time says galatians 4 verse 4 now according to scholars this was not the year zero when jesus was born it wasn't the year one the person who who did the calculations for the modern calendar we use dionysius exodus Uh, Well, his calculations were wrong. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived in the first century, and Josephus says that King Herod the Great died in the year 4 BC. And we know that Jesus was born before King Herod died, according to Matthew 2. So scholars reckon that Jesus was born somewhere between the year 6 BC and and 4 BC. That sounds strange. Jesus is born before Christ. Uh, But it's just because of the wrong calculations this other guy made. And really, the date doesn't matter much because the birth of Jesus is still the pivot of history. It's still the pivot, and all of history revolves around the birth of Jesus, even though someone um, didn't do his calculations correctly. (coughs) But, But the reference point is still Jesus. And then also to show that, to maybe just elaborate on this, what Luke does to show that everything is about Jesus, Luke tells us in verse 7, he was Jesus was the firstborn. He was the firstborn of Mary. So in other words, Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne. And he's also adopted by stepfather Joseph. And then he's not only the firstborn of Mary, we know from Scripture he's the firstborn of creation, Colossians 1.15. So He's the heir of all things. Everything belongs to Christ. Hebrews 1 verse 2. He is the firstborn of heaven. Hebrews 1 verse 5 and 6. The Son of God. He's the unique Son of God. And He comes forth from the Father. He's generated by the Father from eternity. He has no beginning. He is the only begotten of the Father. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of His nature. His years have no end. He is from everlasting to everlasting. And yet this eternal God now lies helpless as a baby boy in a manger, verse 7. And then you see His mother, she wraps Him in swaddling cloths. That's just strips of cloth. And you wrap the baby's arms tighter tight against its body uh, to keep warm and also so the baby can't take his little hands and you know they've got sharp nails and they scratch their faces. And so so regarding this king lying in a manger verse 7 says there was no place for them in the inn. There's no place in the hotel And so Jesus now is born in a manger, and this is to show that He humbles Himself. This is to show that Jesus became poor. This is to show that Jesus is not welcome in this world. There's not even place for Him in the inn. His own people did not accept accept Him. He's not welcome. Is He welcome in your life? Is Jesus welcome in your life? And is that visible? Is it visible to others in the way you you spend your time and money that Jesus is welcome in your life? Is it visible in your family and your circle of friends? Is it visible in your, your relaxation and in your entertainment that Jesus is welcome in your life? Is it visible in your job and in your worship? Or are there areas in your life where you want Jesus? Please, you, it's almost like you're saying to Jesus, please don't interfere in this area of my life. There's no place for you in this part of the inn. There's no place for you in this part of the hotel of my life. Please wait outside, Jesus. Quiet time will have to wait, obedience to you will have to wait. The gathering with other believers on the Lord's Day will have to wait because I'm busy with this thing. And you don't have, there's no place for you in this end. Listen, what does it help? What does it help that you acknowledge Jesus is the pivot of history, but he's not the pivot of your life? Hudson Taylor said, Christ is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I tell you? And if that quotation by Hudson Taylor and that quote by Jesus from Luke 6 verse 46, if that really convicts you and it puts a finger on a raw nerve, the reason for that is because Jesus loves you. And Jesus wants to save you from the foolish way you are walking on. Jesus wants you with Him. Jesus wants you to be with Him. Jesus wants to be with you. Jesus wants to satisfy you with good things. Jesus wants to pour his grace upon you like a waterfall.
0: So don't reject the loving rebuke of Jesus this morning. Number two, Jesus, the shepherds and the angels. Verse 8 to 20. And in the same region...
1: There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem to see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger.
0: And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary, treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them.
1: When we were in Scottsboro quite recently, we bought a nativity scene for Christmas. And like all the nativity scenes you find, was baby Jesus in a manger and Mary and Joseph and some donkeys and camels and cattle and sheep and they were shepherds and there were wise men with their gifts three of them three wise men well not quite so as many of you already know that that is not that is not the way it happened Uh, the wise men weren't there at the manger only the shepherds were there. The shepherds were the very first ones to see Jesus lying in a manger. The wise men were not there, and there was no star. That only came later, according to Matthew 2, verse 9 to 11, when Jesus was in a house in Bethlehem. Now, why did God choose these shepherds to be the first witnesses of Jesus, the Messiah, lying in a manger? Verse 8. I think one of the reasons is to show that Jesus is the great shepherd. Jesus is the great shepherd who looks for lost sheep and finds them. And then another reason why God chooses the shepherds is because according to the Babylonian Talmud, uh, a Jewish document, Jews regarded shepherds as robbers. You are stealing. You are dishonest because you let your sheep graze in someone else's pasture, on someone else's farm. And so, so shepherds were not allowed to testify in court. But now God chooses these shepherds to be the first witnesses of the Messiah. And they do become the witnesses. They do testify. They do tell of Jesus. And this is to show that Jesus came for the outcast like these shepherds the doctor came for those who are sick not for the healthy and so God now sends his angel to bring the good news to these shepherds to announce good, announce good news in verse 9 and when the shepherds saw this they were terrified they're shaking in their sandals and they're so afraid when they see the glory of God in verse 9 And I think any of us would be, if we see an angel, you would tremble. You see the glory of God, you would fall down like one dead on your face. And then the angel reassures them in verse 10 and said, Don't be afraid, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Many people will be glad when they hear this news. God has sent the Savior to save us. God has sent him to forgive us our sins, to forgive our sins. Good news of great joy. And this joy you see a number of places in Scripture. Just take the book of Acts. The Ethiopian eunuch was he went on his way with great joy after he had been saved and forgiven and baptized. Or in Acts eight verse eight, there was great joy in that city among the Samaritans when, when Philip preached the good news and they saw the miracles. Or in Acts 13 verse 48, the, the Gentiles, they rejoiced when they hear that salvation has come to them, and there's great joy among those new disciples in 1352 of Acts. Or you see the Philippian jailer in Acts 1634, he and his whole family rejoice about the salvation that has now come to them. And you, you perhaps, I hope you can say, I rejoice that God has forgiven my sin and I have been saved. Uh, You see the joy of the Mook tribe in Papua New Guinea, where there's a video, you can find this very easily on YouTube, you just type in um, e-taow, E-E-T-A-O-W, etal Papua New Guinea, and you'll find this, this missionary story of the Mook tribe, M-O-U-K, where a missionary comes and he spends lots of time with him, he learns the language and all of this, and eventually he starts teaching them the bible he starts in genesis goes through and then he comes to the story of jesus and then the crucifixion and they're so disappointed they're so disappointed jesus is killed he was their hero because he'd healed all the sick and taught wonderful stories and so on and they're so disappointed but then the missionary waits until sunday morning and they want to know the rest of the story and they wonder jesus is going to break free uh, Jesus is going to break free, but but they devastated when he doesn't, and he's crucified, and he dies, and he's buried, and then on Sunday morning, um, the missionary tells them the story of the resur- resurrection, and they are overwhelmed with joy, and then he says, God says, and then then they start getting up one after the other, uh, saying that I believe, I believe. This is true that you are saying, and I believe that, and Jesus is my sin bearer, and I have sinned against him, and I am evil, but Jesus has become my sin bearer. I believe, and one after the other they get up. I believe too, I believe too. And eventually he says, well, if you believe, then God says that your sins are forgiven. And the joy starts the celebration, and they dance and they sing for more than two hours. It's like a revival breaks out there. That's the good news that we believe. Jesus has come to save us from our sins. The good news, Jesus is born for us, verse 11, for unto you is born, for us, unto us a child is born. For sinners, and the, the angel proclaims, or the angel emphasizes the word today, unto you is born this day in the city of David, this day This day, to show that that salvation is available this day to all who believe. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable time. This day, this Sunday even, there is salvation for all who will believe in the Son of God, in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who saves us from our sins. Verse 11 says He is the Savior. He saves us from our sins. He saves us from hell, from God's judgment. And then that title, Savior, also shows that Jesus is God because Isaiah 43 verse 11 and Hosea 13 verse 4 says there is no other Savior except the Lord. He's the only Savior and the New Testament says Jesus is that Savior. He's our great God and Savior, Titus 2:13, 2, 2 Peter 1 verse 1. And then verse 11 also says Jesus is Lord. He's Christ the Lord, Christ is a word that means a greek word it means anointed one the special one of god Uh, the hebrew equivalent there is the word messiah he's the christ or the messiah of god but he's not only the christ of god the christ verse 11 says he's also the lord so yes he's the christ of god the anointed one of god but he's also god himself he's the god of the old testament so jesus is the son of david but he's also david's lord Isaiah 11 verse 1 and verse 10. He's the shoot of David, the offspring of David, but he's also the root of David. As Revelation twenty two sixteen 16 tells us. So is Jesus that for you? Is Jesus, verse 11, for you? Is he your Savior? Is he your Messiah? Is he your Lord? Is he, the, is he your Savior who has redeemed you from your, from your sins? Saved you from your sins? Is he your Lord and you submit yourself to him? Is He this for your family? Do you pray that your family, that Jesus will be their Lord and their Savior and their Messiah? Or do you doubt sometimes? You doubt that Jesus is really Lord and Savior because He hasn't saved your family, because He hasn't removed your sin. Well, you do not need to doubt that He is really Lord and Savior because of verse 12. This will be the sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. There was a sign given to show the shepherds, to show to them, Jesus is really the Savior. He's really the Messiah. He's really Lord. And then this army of angels, the heavenly host, verse 13, they appear and they confirm this when when they sing. When they praise God in verse 13 and verse 14, they call out, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased or with whom he is pleased. So the angels know Jesus is Lord. The angels know Jesus is the pivot of history. The angels know Jesus is the pivot of their whole existence. That's why they sing praise. That is why you find angels all throughout the Christmas story, where the angels look with great eagerness when the Son of God is born. That is why the angels worship the Son of God, Hebrews 1:6 and Revelation five, verse 11 and 12. That is why the angels come and they are involved in the ministry of Jesus. in Matthew four, when he's tempted in the, in the desert, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when angels angel strengthens him, says Luke 22. And when Jesus rises from the dead, there are angels at the empty tomb. And when Jesus goes up to heaven, there are angels that appear to the 11 disciples in Acts 1. And when Jesus comes again, there will be angels that come with Him. Matthew 25 verse 31. You see, the angels are excited about God's plan to save sinners. And that is why in verse 14 they praise God and they glorify God. And they acknowledge Him in verse 14. Glory to God in the highest They acknowledge that He is the Exalted One. God is one that not only looks down from heaven to earth, God is one who even looks down on heaven. Says Psalm 113, verse 4 to 6. He is the Most High, and yet He stoops. He bows down. He comes down to us to save us. Verse 14b, on earth peace among those with whom He is well-pleased. He leaves His heavenly glory and He becomes a man. And so the way God brings peace in verse 14, the way He brings peace to us is through Jesus who shed His blood so that we do not have to shed our blood. And in this way Jesus brought peace. He made peace between us and God. God sent Christ, His Son, to make peace. We are no longer enemies of God, but friends of God
0: because God has made peace through the blood of
1: his cross but this peace is not for everyone verse 14 says peace among those with whom he is pleased this peace is only for those with whom God is pleased and perhaps you've thought about that is God pleased with you Well, God can only be pleased with you if Jesus is the pivot of your life. Why? Because only Jesus is the beloved Son of God with whom He is pleased. Verse, Chapter 3, verse 22. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So if you want to win God's favor, you must believe in His Son. In Jesus with whom He is well pleased. You cannot do anything to earn God's favor and for for God to look upon you with pleasure. Without faith it is impossible to please God. So you must believe in His Son. And this does not only go for unbelievers, it goes for Christians too. It goes for believers because sometimes we as Christians, we think God will only forgive us once we have fasted, once we have spent hours in prayer, once we have read lots and lots and lots from the Bible, once we have come to church for a few weeks because we've sinned and we need to make up and we need to score brownie points. And all of a sudden you think, now I'm worthy enough to take the Lord's table to eat the bread and drink the cup as if you can become worthy in yourself
0: God does not want you to do that
1: if you want God to be pleased with you then believe in his son with whom he is well pleased focus on Jesus and not on yourself and that is exactly what the shepherds did the shepherds didn't say I must first make myself better because I'm only a shepherd I don't have any status I need a higher position in society they didn't do that because it didn't go about it wasn't about them it was about Jesus. And so they ran with haste to see Jesus in verse 15. Because they wanted, they wanted Jesus to be for them everything the angel promised he would be in verse 11. Lord and Savior and Messiah. And then when they got there, they found him in verse 16, exactly like the angel predicted. Wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a
0: manger. And they, they, they told this to Joseph and Mary in verse 17, they they said
1: everything that the angel had told them. These things that we read of in verse 11, 12. The sign, the baby wool, liner a manger, swaddling bands, swaddling cloths. In verse 11, Lord, Saviour, Christ. So they, they said all this to Joseph and Mary. And and later on, they said it to others in verse Verse 18, all who heard this wondered at what the shepherds told them. So they obviously spread the news, but what Mary did in verse 19, yes, these people wondered, they were amazed, but Mary in verse 19, she hid these things in her heart. She pondered them, she thought about them again and again, kind of thinking, what does this mean? And I think it will be good for us if we can also have Jesus and thoughts of Jesus in our hearts. Let Jesus fill our hearts like He filled Mary's heart. Fill our hearts. And then this will happen indeed if we think on Him often, if we ponder these truths about Jesus, if we praise Jesus, if we tell others of Jesus, just like the shepherds did. Verse 20, they returned glorifying and praising God. Verse 18, the shepherds told everyone, These things. In verse 19, Mary pondered them. If we do the same thing, Jesus will become precious to us. Now many people say, I don't have time to do these things. I want to give more time to the Lord, but I simply do not have time. I do not believe you. That is not true. Because if your family pays you a surprise surprise visit, you haven't seen them for two years, they live overseas, and all of a sudden they appear, they arrive, it was a surprise, you'll make time. If the, doctor t- if the doctor tells you tomorrow you've got cancer, you need, to, you need treatment, you will make time. You see, the reason why Jesus does not fill our lives is because we do not see Jesus like the shepherds saw him. So ask the Lord, give me a fresh vision of Christ. And then you will not be able to be quiet. It will not be possible to remain quiet. You will bubble over. It's like you will overflow with Christ. And you will add your voice to the voice of the angels and the shepherds and you will acknowledge Jesus is the pivot
0: of heaven and earth. Who is there like Jesus? The son of Mary and the son of God. Of whom else can we say that he is the pivot of history and of the universe? There's this famous quote about Jesus,
1: and it goes, quote, More than 1900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He didn't travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived. That was during his exile and childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous, not important, and had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled the king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the waves as pavement, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book. And yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, and yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have under his orders made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far near. Once each week, multitudes gather at worshipping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past, proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man multiplies more and more. Though time has spread 1900 years between the people of this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, Jesus still lives. His enemies could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils as the risen personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Lord, we worship and praise you this morning for your magnificence, your majesty, your beauty, your brilliance, your brightness, your holiness, O God. All glory and honor and praise be to you now and forever. Amen.